If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. If you don't have a Bible, you can slip your hand up. Gary in the back has uh, got a stack there, and we'd be happy to uh, get you a copy. If you're following along in the version or whatever Bible app you might use, we're using the CSB, uh, the Christian Standard Bible. I used to joke and call it the Coastal Sunshine Bible. And then my wife said, why do you do that? That's just not funny at all. So, but I, I just got a couple, la- uh, I got more laughs from her. So I think it's just, so the, the Christian standard Bible, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So Veterans Day is today. And uh, it makes us think of the freedom we have as Americans, as people who are here, whether citizens or residents of the United States of America. Uh, one of the great symbols of American freedom is the Statue of Liberty in the, you know, the, the, the New York Harbor as it, it greets people with the, 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 you know, the flaming torch of liberty as people uh, enter in maybe for the first time if they've immigrated uh, you know, back before there were airplanes and on ships through Ellis Island and these sorts of things. The Statue of Liberty was actually designed um, by, by a, a French sculptor who then worked with a man who actually was, a, was an, uh, an engineer, an architect, and a builder to build it so that it would last uh, through the generations, and it was completed in the 1880s. And the person who this sculptor worked with was a man named Gustave Eiffel. Now, you may recognize that name because he also has a tower that is pretty well known uh, that he designed as well. If you If I asked you to think about the city of Paris, France, the first thing probably that would come to your mind is the Eiffel Tower. It's this steel structure that that just towers over the sky. It was um, built for the World Fair uh, in the late 1880s, designed um, by Gustave Eiffel and his associates, and is now uh, named after Eiffel, who also uh, helped to build the Statue of Liberty. When, when the Paris World's Fair was being planned, they had a hundred different people submit uh, proposals for a centerpiece for the ex- exhibition, um, that something that would grab the attention of the world, and what won out was Gustave Eiffel and his associates' design for this grand iron tower, taller than anything else in the world, like the world had never seen, um, that... that ended up winning, winning the, 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 the proposal contest and was built and is now the most famous icon in the city of Paris and one of the most famous icons uh, in the whole world. It was actually designed, the Eiffel Tower was designed after a tower in New York that was built for um, a, a, a World's Fair 30 years before that was called the Latin Observatory. And this was uh, a few hundred feet tall. It was uh, the tallest building in the United States at the time, but it was made out of wood and it uh, was eventually deconstructed and actually burned to the ground. But, but it was just enough to inspire these, these visionary men to, to look at the skyline and to see something that wasn't there. Um, a, a grand structure that, that, would, that, would, that would stand above everything else that people all over the world would be just amazed by and, and, and talk about. And not only then in the late 19th century, but here we are, you know, 150 years later nearly, and we're still talking about it. We still know about it. If you go to Paris, 
you know, if uh, my brother and sister and my brother-in-law and sister-in-law went to Paris for their honeymoon, and they brought us back Eiffel Tower stuff. I had a student in a class I was teaching who went to France, and she brought back a gift for me as her teacher. It was an Eiffel Tower keychain. All right, so this structure has captured the imagination of the world, and it began with some men who looked at a, a skyline and imagined what could be there. They saw this, this tower that had been built in New York, and they thought, we could do that, we can do it uh, maybe even on a grander scale as engineering and technology has improved. Well, I think that actually is a lot like what we're doing here as a new church. We look in the Bible, and we see this vision of what God uh, is, is showing the church could be. And we look at a community, and we see there, there are lots of churches, there's lots of good churches, but there are not enough churches. And, and if everyone tomorrow decided they wanted to come back to church next Sunday, there wouldn't be nearly enough seats to hold them. There, if, everyone, if every church in the area doubled overnight, it wouldn't even make a dent in the number of people who really need to know the message of Jesus. And so we see in the Bible, we see this vision and this picture of what, what God wants to be, and that is His church. And so we're just trying to build uh, something in partnership with Him that, that resembles what the Scripture teaches. I've said earlier on in the series in Ephesians that per, probably more than any other book, Ephesians has shaped the vision of this new church. And probably more than any single passage in Ephesians, this second half of chapter 2 has shaped the vision of Cross United Church and, and why we're doing uh, what we're doing. We exist to help people find life like God intended by bringing people to God and bringing people together through the cross of Jesus Christ. When people are brought to God in wholehearted worship, and they're brought together in authentic community, and they're given a sense of the mission that God offers uh, them, this, this adventurous purpose in life, they begin to experience the life that Jesus offers to them. And we believe one of the greatest hindrances at our church rally yesterday, I, I talked about this, we've talked about this a lot at different points, um, and, and one of the greatest hindrances to experiencing this fullness of life is what we call autopilot. Autopilot is when we're just sort of coasting through life. Now, autopilot can take all sorts of different forms. For some people, it's crazy, busy, hectic that, that we don't have time to stop and really or, or slow down and notice what God is doing in us, through us, and among us. Or it can be sort of a, 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 a sort of standstill in life. Autopilot might be like being out of gas on the side of the road or just coasting along, um, just routine sort of bored life um, and not really sensing what God wants to do in us, what he wants to do through us, what he wants to do in the world. And I think one of the greatest an antidotes to the, the, the condition of autopilot is to look at the scripture and see what God invites us into. And in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, God invites us to join him in bringing people to God and bringing people together through the cross of Jesus Christ. In, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, he invites us to join him in bringing people to God and bringing people together through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's read the whole text and then we'll jump in. Uh, there's going to be three different sections we look at. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by hands. 
At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise and without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who has made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put to death the hostility. He came and he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away, And peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. Members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Let's pray before we go any further. Father in heaven, may you put this text deep inside of us, that you would shape us by your word. Your word is living, it's active, it's sharper than a, a, a razor sharp two-edged sword. And it it, it is, is the power behind any ministry, any sermon is, 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 is based in your word, and so I just pray you would you would just use it to shape your church in the mission you've given. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing we see in verses 11 through 13, bring people to God in wholehearted worship. Bring people to God in wholehearted worship. He says to remember, he says, you were at that time Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands. And so he, he's talking here about their identity, in the, and, and they, were, they, were, they were recipients of, of ethnic slurs, if you will, that they were called the uncircumcised. They were, they were, they, this, was, this was a pejorative way to speak about Gentiles. They, they were not circumcised. They were not part of God's covenant people. They were not part of God's people of promise. And he says to remember, this is the BC part of their life and their story, the before Christ part of their story. He's told them in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that they were dead in sin. And here he's telling them that they, to remember that they were disadvantaged, they were underprivileged, they were marginalized, they were vulnerable, they were oppressed, both because of their ethnic identity and their religious beliefs. They were outside of God's promises, outside of God's purpose, outside of God's goodness. They were excluded, he says in verse 12, excluded without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, and therefore hopeless and separated from God. So what what he's basically doing is he is saying, you all were missing out on everything that God was doing that was good in the world. Because you were separated from the covenant. You were separated from God's promises that he gave through Abraham. 
They were far away. But then the blood of Christ came and it changed everything. He says, and now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you were far away, have been brought near. So, so we talk about bring people to God in wholehearted worship. I think we have to acknowledge a couple of things. Number one, our differences are real. Our differences are real. Every week I make it a point to, to just talk about the fact that we have all sorts of different people anytime we gather as a church. Like I said, we have people who voted for DeSantis and we have people who voted for Gillum. We have people who voted for Rick Scott and people who voted for Bill Nelson. We have people who wear Rolexes. We have people who wear Timexes. We have people who are living paycheck to paycheck, people who have uh, more, more money than, than many could even imagine having. We, we, we have white people and we have black people. And we have Latin people. We have all sorts of different people. And the, the reality is those things are real. And those differences are real. We have males and females. The fact that we're Christians doesn't mean that we're, we're all identical. We're not uniform. What's a uniform? A uniform is something everyone wears so they look exactly the same as much as possible. Uniformity is not what the church is called to. What the church is called to is unity. That is, we are together despite our real differences. So our, our differences are real. There's going to be differences. And there's going to be different cultural practices. There's going to be different political beliefs. There's going to be different ways of applying what, what people think that the, the Bible is saying. And the reality is in a church, especially in South Florida, we're going to see, see those differences and we're going to experience those differences. And the question is, are we going to pretend that they don't exist and have superficial relationships or are we going to move into true worship together? First thing, our differences are real, but number two, our differences are secondary. Our differences are secondary. What the scripture teaches is not that Christianity eliminates the fact that my heart language is English and yours might be Spanish. Christianity does not come with a language learning kit, right? It doesn't come with one language. It doesn't come with one cultural practice. What it does is it submits those things to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it says that those things are real, but they are not primary. Anyone who trusts in Jesus and his blood can approach God in worship. Anyone who recognizes that the fundamental reality of humanity is not whether they've got dark skin or light skin, or whether they are from a certain ethnic heritage or have a certain socioeconomic buying power or a certain political persuasion, but that they are a sinner and that they are in need of a savior. The fundamental reality in humanity is that people are alienated from God because of their, their sin, and that God has provided a way through his son Jesus, if you will turn from your sin and trust in him, that you will be saved. So what unites us together is something that transcends these very real differences. And so this brings me to the third implication of this particular point, and that is you need to be at church. You need to come to church. The gathering, you know, there's been a lot of studies showing church attendance in the U.S. is declining. And what they've seen is it, it is in part due to the fact that there are fewer people going to church, but it's more so due to the fact that people who go to church go less frequently. And so a regular churchgoer is seen as someone who goes twice a month. 
used to be people went twice a week. Now, I'm not saying you have to go to church, you know, like every morning, noon, and night and be in church, you know, all the time. But what I am saying is what God has designed is for us to be gathered together in a gathering of worship with people who are different than us. And that when we talk, one of our core values is wholehearted worship. We mean that wholehearted worship as a gathered body on Sunday both flows from a life of worship Monday through Saturday and also begins to shape that life of worship Monday through Saturday as well. So worship is, is Monday through Sunday, Sunday through Saturday. It's all day, every day. It's the life that we live, but it is shaped by gathering together. So here's a simple next step for you. Commit to regular weekly church attendance. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir, most likely, and I don't mean that quite literally, but I, I mean that if you're here, you're probably already a faithful churchgoer, but maybe not. Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe it's, it's, you know, it's hard to get the kids. I get it. It's hard to get the kids ready. It's hard to do those things, but commit to being a regular, faithful, weekly churchgoer as far as it is possible. Number two, Bring people together in authentic community, verses 14 through 16. So look, it says in verse 14, He is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. So so there was this intense hostility between Jews and Gentiles in in, in the ancient world. you know, think of racial tension today. There is all sorts of ways that this expresses itself in different places and different cultures. In, in the U.S., it's been a white-black tension oftentimes. But it's not just that. It's, it's, it's often more than that as well. And in other places, it may be the same ethnic group, but, but maybe they have um, different uh, practices or religious beliefs or whatever uh, the case may be. There is this intense hostility. Well, that that is probably... Um, not, it, is, it really pales in comparison to what the tension would have been between Jews and Gentiles in that time. This was like, like the difference now between, you know, uh, like radical Muslims and committed Christians. There's this, there's this deep divide between what they believe. And this is what, this is what was happening in, in the life of Jews and Gentiles at this time. And, and in our nation, particularly, we have this we have this core value of e pluribus unum. It's on the seal of the U.S., out of many, one. But, but in reality, our nation is so divided. Our nation is so divided. Our communities are so divided. We're divided between, like, which side of, you know, the highway you might live on or which side of the tracks you might live on, which side, you know, north or south, what county line you might be crossing, and, 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 you know, we have those on the, the, the liberal left who are saying we need to be globalists and we need to be united about our common humanity. And then on the, the conservative right, we have those who say we need to be nationalists. We need to be united around our common nationality. But what the gospel does is it offers something more beautiful than either of the sides that have been polarized in our context. It offers true fullness of peace through a person who came and brought peace. So there's the person of peace, Jesus Christ. He was, a, he was fully God, but he became a true and real man. And he came and he died. And it says three things about Jesus here in these verses. Number one, he made both groups one. Verse 14, 
Number two, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And number three, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. In the temple at this time, the Jewish temple, there was uh, different levels, you know, there were these different uh, places where different people were allowed to go. So in, in, in the, the, there was this outer court that was called the court of the Gentiles. So anyone who was a Gentile could go into that court, but to go any further, you had to be a Jew. And there was this dividing wall. Not only that, there was a dividing wall because the Jewish people had the law of God, the Torah, and they, they believed, they believed as, as they did, it was rightly so, that this was God's revelation of himself to humanity, and they were custodians of this, and that anyone who did not, you know, was not part of their, their group was outside of, this, of, of, of the, the purposes and the promises of God. And, and, and this was, in some ways, very true, but the reality is when Jesus came, he broke the barriers down and brought everyone together, not in Jew and Gentile, but in Christ or not in Christ. It, it, there have been times in the church in America where it's been said that 11 a.m. on Sunday is the most segregated hour of the week. And, and part of the reason for this is, is the, the history of our nation so, for example, in 1787, you want to know part of why we have all these different denominations and why there's white churches and black churches? Well, part of the reason is, for example, in 1787, there was a man named Richard Allen and a number of other African Americans who were worshiping uh, at St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. And they were in a white-only area, and they were kneeling and they were praying. And some of the other white Christians in the church came up. They made them get up, and they made them go to their own section. And what Richard Allen said is, hey, if we can't all worship together equally, we're going to go and we're going to start our own church where we can worship in freedom. And so instead of the Methodist Episcopal Church, it was the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And that's just one example of how Christians have misunderstood, or misread, or just not applied places like Ephesians 2, where it says that we have been, the, the dividing walls of hostility have been torn down in Christ. And what the church offers is an opportunity to show unity where the rest of our society shows division through the person of peace. Second, the purpose of peace. The purpose of peace. Jesus came with a twofold purpose in verse 15 and 16. Number one, he came so that they might, he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. And number two, to reconcile both to one, in one body to God through the cross. And so what this is saying is, long before Martin Luther King had a dream, God had a dream. And God's dream was to bring people of every tongue, tribe, and family and nation together into one new, not just group, not just even family, but an entirely new humanity. There's one race in the world, the human race. Say that. It's a cliche. People say that. It's true. But the reality is that's actually only part of the story. Because every member of the human race who's descended from our common ancestor is part of the human race. And every person who's ever been born is alienated from God, is separated from God in the likeness of Adam. But what the scripture teaches is that God is creating a new, a new human race in the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. And so there is 
There are two races in the world. There is the race of those who are outside of Christ, and there is the race of those who are in Christ. There are those who have been brought into new life and are part of God's new humanity, and there are those who have not yet been brought into that, and that's our mission. We're going to talk about that in a minute as the church to invite people into that. And so what that means is you have more racial commonality with a brother or sister whose skin is different or his language is different than yours than you do with your own brother or sister in the flesh if they are not in Christ than you are. We, as a, as a church, God knows that we need each other, that our fundamental identities are not what define us, but our, our identity in Christ. You know, younger people need older people. We were at Bible study, and I hope, um, Al, I hope you're okay with me telling this story. He's, he doesn't even know what I'm going to say, but he already nodded. And he goes, when you get to be my age, you've done a lot of living, and you've done a lot of sinning, and you know that only God's grace, it's only God's grace. You know, when I talk to someone, and I, I hear that, that's a good word that I need. Younger people need older people. And you know what? Older people need younger people. And you know what? Sometimes in a church like ours, we got a ton of kids here, and after service, you're going to see they're all going to come out, and they're going to they're raid the donut holes, and they're going to run around, and they're gonna, it's, it's going to be a little bit chaotic, but you know what? You know what that sounds like? That sounds like a church that's alive. That's what it sounds like. We need people who have different socioeconomic situations than us. I'll never forget growing up, I grew up, mid, I just grew up middle class, just Middle class, I didn't know at the time how, how, how blessed we really were. We weren't rich, but we just didn't really have a lot we had to worry about. And we had this, there was this lady in our church, and, and she made a comment at something. So actually, okay, full disclosure, it was a Christian dieting seminar at our church, okay? So obviously, obviously I learned a lot from it, okay? Um, <laughs> and she said, well, it's really good to learn not to eat too much when you have $40 till your next paycheck to buy food. And I was sitting with my dad, and he goes, wow. It's just you don't realize the, what other people may be living through because you, you, you think what you have is normal. And you need, we need those differences to say, what does it look like to trust God when you literally are not sure how you're going to buy bread? We need people of different ethnic backgrounds. There, there, there's a story. Um, we were doing some... some uh, um, door hangers a, a while back before we launched the church. And our team was there. It was, I don't know how many of us. It might have been 15 or 20 of us. And we were all wearing the blue Cross United shirts. Every one of us was wearing a, a shirt. Um, maybe a couple weren't, but almost everyone was. And, uh, and we were all going out. We were going in the neighborhood, and we were in teams. There were, you know, two or three or four or five people together. And we just go, and we were doing door hangers. And you know what? We were all wearing the same shirts. We were all doing the same thing. But there was one person who got stopped and questioned by the cops. And it was the African-American in the group. And I'd say, I don't, I have no idea what it's like. And I, and I said, man, I'm so sorry that happened. He says, you know what? I wasn't too surprised. And I just, I don't, I've learned over my years not to let it bother me. He said, until we have a real conversation about this issue in our country, things aren't going to get better. I don't know what it's like to have that kind of life experience. And it would be arrogant of me to say that, that his experience is, is the same as my experience. We really need each other. I, I was 
talking with someone else yesterday at the church rally whose first language is not English and, and, and talking about worshiping. I have no idea what it's like to sit in a service every week and, and listen in a language that's not my first language and listen intently to, to what the preacher is saying. I've, I've, I've never done that on a regular basis. And there may be things we can learn, and there are things we can learn from the experience of one another as we are brought together in authentic community. Number three, the joyful mission of bringing people to God and bringing people together. Verses 17 through 22. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Here we see the first missionary, the first missionary was Jesus. Jesus came and preached peace. He came and he preached peace. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And, and what, what we see is Jesus has been given a mission by his Father, and that then he entrusts us with that same mission as well. John 20.21 20, says, As the Father sent me, so I send you. There's a paraphrase of this verse in the J.B. J.B. Phillips was a, a British um, pastor in uh, the mid-20th century in the United Kingdom and actually in the city of London. And he wanted to do, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the message translation, um, he wanted to do sort of a message tr translation for uh, young British people in the mid-20th century. And it's called the Phillips translation, named after him. And he began his translation in the, in, the, in the heart of World War II. And he actually was doing some of these translations in bomb shelters. Now, keep that in mind when I read you his translation of Ephesians 2.17. He came and he told both you who were far from God and us who were near that the war was over. As he's sitting in this bomb shelter, I can just see him translating Ephesians 2. And can you imagine, you're, you're like this hollowed out shell of a city as, as the, 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 the London Blitz is going and, and all of this is happening. And, and, and he's writing and he's seeing this, wow, he came and he preached. He said, the war is over. How much more so the, the enmity and the hostility between us and God and us and one another. If... if you, the, 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 the palpable sense of going out in the street and saying the war is over after all that happened in World War II. How much more so should we be going out and saying, peace, peace, the war is over. The war is over. God isn't angry. And we don't have to be angry with one another. He's brought us together. And he says, just to, 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 to wrap it up there, in verse 21, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then in verse 22, in him you are being built together. I, I don't know, as you, see, as you see this text, you see, see what God is, is, is calling his church to. He's calling us to envision something that isn't yet there. 
He's calling us to envision in North Broward County something that is not there. He's calling us to, to, to see the, what, what for everyone else looks just like an empty skyline and to imagine the outline of this great tower like Gustave Eiffel looked at the, the, tower, the, the, the skyline of Paris and everyone else just saw sky and the little buildings that were there and he saw this, this enormous grand iron structure that, that still stands to this day. This is what God is calling us to, to see what he wants to do. He wants to bring people to himself. He wants to bring people together and he wants to give us an opportunity to be a part of the mission. He wants to give us an opportunity to be a part of building what he has designed and what he has laid out the plans for. And we have a master architect and he says, here, here's a hammer and here's some nails. Let's build this. When I was in college, I worked uh, construction. I think I've shared this story before. And every once in a while, we'll go back to my hometown in California and we'll go down this one cul-de-sac and there are three houses on that same street that when I was in college, I worked on. And I would tell, I'll tell my kids, you know what? I helped build that. I, was, I actually, there are nails in the walls of that house that I drove in. There are studs in that house that are not quite flush that I put in. <laughs> We're not here for ourselves. The church is founded, as we see there in the text, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, on the scripture. And we're building this church on the scripture. And we're here to join in the mission that God has to bring people to himself. We talked yesterday at the church rally about the fact that we've prayed a lot. Luke 10, 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. But then Luke 10.3 continues, and we've been praying that every morning at 10.02, my alarm goes off, and we pray that, and God has answered that in amazing ways. And the, the, the group of you who are here, you're, you're, you're an answer to that prayer as you've uh, partnered with us, and we're so grateful. And then in Luke 10.3, the next verse, the next word says, now go, now go. So what's your simple next step? Invite your friends and get to know some people who aren't like you. Get to know some other members of the church and invite other people in. Now, don't be obnoxious. Don't, you know, don't be that person who's like, oh my gosh, I don't want to have to talk to them because they're just going to, you know, don't be like obnoxious in that. You know that salesman? Everyone knows that salesman, right? Who just like, oh my goodness, like I'm giving you all the signals here. I'm not interested. And they just won't take no for an answer and even say no. And, and, they, and they won't take no for an answer. Don't be like that, but, but don't, don't be like just, you know, well, maybe would you, you could come to church with me one time, and they don't say yes, and so you never bring it up again. Be persistent. If they don't say no, then maybe they're still open. Maybe they just couldn't come that week, or maybe say, hey, you know what? Um, I don't know if you're interested, but we're going to do this kids' choir at our church on the 23rd on Christmas Eve Eve, and... Um, and it'll be great. You can come the few Sundays in December uh, during the service. The kids will practice in the kids' area, and you can enjoy the service. And then there'll be a little choir they could be a part of. And, and maybe, they're, maybe they're interested. Maybe it's something like, you know, that'd be fun for them to do at Christmas time. On your seat there, there's a card that, that, um, that I just want you to take. And I want you to think about who is someone you could invite this week 
who you could say, hey, I'd love for you to join what God is doing at this new church that I'm a part of. In 1889, Paris was a famous city. It was one of the most famous and beautiful cities in the world. It didn't have the Eiffel Tower, and it was still beautiful, and it was still famous, and everyone, you know, Paris was, was a, a center of cultural influence. But now, now you think of Paris, like I said, and you think of that tower. What God, God is doing something, and He is building something that doesn't yet exist, that in the future may be the most important thing in the life, maybe not of a whole city, but in the life of a person or a life of a family. And we have the opportunity to be a part of building that. So grab a hammer, grab some nails, and let's build together. And let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us together. But more importantly, thank you, thank you for bringing us to yourself. Thank you for the opportunity to join in the mission of bringing people to you, bringing people together through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.